Hey listeners, my name is Sam, and thank you for joining me for episode one of Crim de la Crime podcast. For the first episode, we're heading to the state of Alabama. According to worldpopulationreview.com, Alabama has 204 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Alabama true crime. The first case I want to share is about Hoover Jerome Morris, and his family said that he went by Jerome. Jerome Morris was born on January 23, 1973, and his family lived in Heflin, Alabama. He was a high school senior when he disappeared and was known for being a great football player. I couldn't find the official name of the high school he attended, but the only school that shows up for Heflin, Alabama is called Claiborne County High School. His dream was to attend the University of Alabama on a football scholarship and eventually go on to play professional football like his uncle Ike Grant. Sources stated that Ike Grant actually played for the New York Jets, and I spent a lot of time looking for any information about Ike Grant's career. I could only find one official article related to him, and it was a statement made by the 1976 New York Jets media guide. So this is what his 1976 rookie profile said. Running back. Free agent. Signed as a free agent, Grant was a solid, punishing runner at Alabama State who played both fullback and tailback. His size and speed are good, and he's an above-average blocker. He rushed for 855 yards in his final two seasons on 181 carries, an average of 4.7 per carry, and averaged 4.9 per carry on a 2-8 team in his junior year. A good receiver, Ike once caught two touchdown passes totaling 40 yards to win two games against rival opponents. He earned all-conference honors for two years and was a small college honorable mention All-American. He was team MVP in 1974 and 1975. Grant holds a Bachelor of Science in Physical Education with a minor in Recreation. He enjoys working with young people in his spare time. His questionnaire response says, I am willing to work and become a winning player on a winning team, the New York Jets. Nicknamed Big Back for his powerhouse running techniques, Grant's hometown is Alexander City, Louisiana. There was also a comment under this from an anonymous person that said, quote, A great person who later taught at Lafayette High School in Alabama, which I had the pleasure of playing under. End quote. Jerome was last seen at his home on Thomas Street in Heflin, Alabama on November 22, 1991. He and his sister were helping their mother prepare for Thanksgiving since she had just gotten surgery done on her knee. His sister noticed a red sports car pull up to the house, and inside was a woman who his mother had previously told him to stay away from. Jerome went outside to see what she wanted, and he came back to say she had been sent by his older brother to pick him up. Jerome's mother trusted his brother, so she didn't object, and Jerome left with his mom. This was the last time Jerome's family would ever see him. 
His older brother eventually came home that afternoon, and when his mom and sister asked about Jerome, he said he never sent anyone to pick up Jerome and that he didn't even know that woman. His brother stated that he assumed Jerome had lied about being picked up so that he could gain permission to leave with this woman. This has never been confirmed. The family called everyone they could think of who might have known where Jerome was, but no one had seen him. The next day, they went to the police to report him missing. The family also went and had missing persons flyers printed, which they hung around a lot of different neighborhoods. So, let's talk about this woman. And I couldn't find what her official name was in any of my research. But she was questioned by police following his disappearance, but there was no evidence to suggest anything happened to him when he was with her. His sister Nicole believes that his disappearance could possibly be drug-related. She said it was possible that Jerome was involved with drugs at the time he disappeared and that they were really close, but this was something that he wouldn't talk to her about. She believes it's possible he may have fallen in with the wrong crowd. A tip came in later that Jerome's remains were buried on a plot of land in Georgia. Investigators carried out searches with cadaver dogs but found no sign of him. His mother said she is still holding on to the hope that he will be found. She made a statement in 2016 saying, quote, Every year when Thanksgiving comes around, I think about Jerome and I wonder if he's alive. End quote. The most recent update I found was from 2016, and Heflin Police Chief A.J. Benefield contacted Jerome's sister Nicole to tell her that he was reopening the case. A.J. and Jerome went to high school together and also played football there together. A.J. stated, quote, this case here was kind of near and dear to my heart as well. We worked out together. He was a phenomenal athlete. It just did something to me and I kind of just broke down and started crying. I remember when reports started coming out that he was missing. We were the same age. It's really sad because he did have a bright future ahead of him if he got through high school and went to college. Maybe even the NFL. End quote. AJ stated in this article that they've already made progress, but their biggest obstacle has been a lack of cooperation from potential witnesses. He stated, quote, We're putting pressure on these people and we're going to pressure them out. End quote. That lack of cooperation has been a problem since the day that Jerome went missing. His mom and sister put flyers up all over neighborhoods trying to find anyone who had seen Jerome. His mother stated, quote, we couldn't get anybody to talk. I guess it was because they were afraid if they said anything, they might be next. End quote. With the reopening of Jerome's case, the family is holding on to hope they will finally get some answers. The police chief made a statement that they absolutely believe foul play is involved and they're going to prove who did it. Sadly, they declared Jerome legally dead in 2003. Hoover Jerome Morris was last seen at his home on Thomas Street in Heflin, Alabama, on November 22, 1991, when he was 18 years old. He is an African-American male with black hair and brown eyes. He goes by his middle name, Jerome, and when he was last seen, he was 6 foot 1 and weighed around 220 pounds. His case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Jerome Morris, please contact the Heflin Police Department at 
463-2292. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The second case I want to share today is about Kimberly Lauren Raymer. And Kimberly Raymer was born on May 18, 1980, to parents Sue and Kenny. She has an older sister named Kristen, who's 17 months older than she is, and it's said that the two of them were extremely close. Her mom and dad were divorced, but Kimberly and her sister split their time between their parents equally. The family lived in Op, Alabama, and Op is a really small town very close to the Florida state border. We all know how small towns are. Everyone knows everything about everybody. Kimberly was said to have been a really great student and also very athletic, her favorite sport being softball. Her mom described her as outgoing and said that she never met a stranger. Sue also said she didn't have any enemies and everyone that met Kimberly gravitated towards her and loved her. After high school, she was planning on attending the University of South Alabama to major in physical therapy. Shortly after her high school senior portraits were taken, Kimberly attended a softball game with some of her friends on the Friday night of August 15, 1997, and then she went home to take a shower. After showering at home, her dad told her he was leaving to go hang out with his girlfriend and that if she were to go out, she needed to be back by 11.30 p.m., which was her normal curfew. Kimberly went to her boyfriend's house for a while and then headed home sometime around her curfew. Her parents had no idea about her boyfriend, and he was significantly older than she was. This guy had been previously married and had a small child so she kept it a secret because she knew they wouldn't approve of the relationship. The two had met at a softball game and had only been dating for around two weeks before she went missing, so only her close friends knew about this relationship. That night, her dad decided to spend the night with his girlfriend so he didn't end up coming home. Her dad's house was only about a five-minute drive away from her boyfriend's, and she's thought to have arrived home sometime between 11.30 p.m. and midnight. Keep in mind, this is 1997, and most people did not have cell phones to communicate with each other, only landline phones. Kimberly was always well-behaved and honored her curfew. She was never in trouble and was also 17, so I'm assuming her dad thought she was mature enough to stay at home by herself. Sometime in the middle of the night on August 15, 1997, Kimberly disappeared from her bedroom. The next morning, Kenny came home and found Kimberly's car in the driveway, but he didn't see any sign of her. He probably assumed she was still sleeping because it stated that her bedroom door was closed, and he also knew she had plans to go somewhere with one of her friends, so he didn't think it was weird that she wasn't up and around the house. He said he left her a note, 
grabbed his golf clubs, and headed out the door. The evening rolls around, and her dad still hasn't heard from her at this point, so he calls her mother Sue and leaves her a voicemail. Sue got this message around 1 or 2 a.m. when she came home from fishing, and this is 2 a.m. early Sunday morning, and keep in mind Kimberly has not been seen since Friday at 11.30 p.m. Sue tried to call Kenny back, but he didn't answer the phone. Probably because it was so late, I'm guessing he's probably asleep at this point, so when he doesn't answer, Sue went to sleep. Later Sunday morning, Kenny called Sue again, and this time she did answer the phone. He asked her if Kimberly was at her house, and this took Sue by surprise because Kimberly was supposed to be staying at his house for the entire weekend. Kenny tells Sue that he hasn't seen her and that he's been calling all of her close friends and none of them had seen her either. Her mom knew this was not normal because Kimberly always told them where she was going and was never gone for extended periods of time. Sue, Kristen, and Kristen's boyfriend, Jeremy Anderson, headed to Kenny's house immediately. When they went in her room, they could tell she had been there and had started her nighttime routine. Her person wallet were there, she had taken out her contacts, and her glasses were also there. This is important because she needed her contacts and she would not have left home without one or the other. Every single pair of her shoes were also accounted for, meaning if she left the house by choice, she left barefoot and basically blind, which seems extremely unlikely to me. What caught the attention of her family the most was that pictures Kimberly had hung on her walls had been knocked off. Her bed was very messy, like there had been a struggle on it, and there was a pillow shoved between the wall and the mattress, which the family thought was very strange. But to her family, it was clear that something had happened in her room. Because Op is such a small town, the news of Kimberly going missing spread very quickly. This led to a ton of her friends and family going in and out of the house, which is really terrible for forensic teams. This was the first case of its kind that these officers had dealt with in op, so it was really hectic. The family was careful not to touch things while they were in her room, but Sue stated that every time she turned around, she found Kristen's boyfriend Jeremy touching things even though they had asked him not to multiple times. Remember this detail, because it is important later. Since the case was so odd and out of the ordinary, Local police called in the Alabama Bureau of Investigations a few days after she went missing. Authorities had reason to believe Kimberly, or whoever was with her, had crossed the Alabama state line, so the search became a multi-agency effort involving the FBI. All of Kimberly's friends started coming over to her dad's house as well, and said that her boyfriend must have her and won't let her leave. Keep in mind, this was the first time her parents had heard anything about a boyfriend, so this really surprised them. But they quickly went to her boyfriend's address where her friend said that he lived, but when they got there, nobody was home. They immediately went and filed a missing persons report at 9 a.m. on Sunday, August 17th. Since her boyfriend was the last known person to see her, police obviously wanted to speak to him first. When they finally tracked him down, They said he was very cooperative. He admitted that Kimberly had come over that Friday night and told them they hadn't gone anywhere but had decided to hang out at his place instead. 
He said Kimberly got in her car around her 11.30 p.m. curfew and left to go home to her dad's. He agreed to take a polygraph test, which he passed, and he was quickly cleared as a suspect. As the investigation and future searches continued, her boyfriend was always helpful and involved in the searches. And that's all I could find related to him. Obviously, the boyfriend seemed like the best suspect. But after he was cleared, investigators proceeded to give polygraphs to all the people closest to Kimberly. This included her parents, close friends, and her sister, and they were all cleared. When it came time for Kristen's boyfriend, Jeremy, to take the test, he flat out refused. Remember, this was also the guy that was disregarding her mom's request and touching all the items in her room. Jeremy Anderson was the only person remotely close to Kimberly that would not take the polygraph test, and he also refused to explain why he would not take it. Obviously, this is strange, so authorities start paying a little closer attention to Jeremy. As they started to dig in his past, they realized he had an extensive criminal history. Jeremy had charges related to robbery, drugs, and assault. So at this point, police have learned that Jeremy has a history of breaking into houses and violence. But please remember, just because someone has a criminal history or refuses a polygraph, that does not make them guilty. So even though police have to keep Jeremy in the back of their minds, they have no further evidence and they have to keep investigating. This is when they decided to pull the landline call records from her dad's house. They expected to maybe have a call to one of her friends or even an attempted 911 call, but what they found was even weirder. A call was dialed at 5.20 a.m. to Florida, and remember that op is very close to the border of Florida. The location that these calls were made to was actually only 10 minutes from her mom's house. There were three numbers dialed in total, But when police started looking into these numbers, all three of them were not assigned to anyone. So none of these calls had even gone through. Kimberly's mom said in an interview that she believes whoever was dialing these numbers was in such a panic that they couldn't hit the right numbers or couldn't remember the actual number they were trying to dial. Even though the numbers didn't go through, the general location of where the calls were being made to was the same area that Jeremy was said to have been attending a party the night Kimberly went missing. So at this point, Jeremy just keeps popping up all over the place. But what's interesting is that Sue said in the interview on The Unfound that just days after Kimberly went missing, Jeremy expressed that he wanted to leave town. Sue stated that she told him he would look very suspicious if he suddenly left town. And she said when she told him that, the look on his face gave her a super sinking gut feeling. Now that all this new information has come forward about Jeremy, police tell Sue that he is officially a suspect. They started working through Jeremy's alibi for that Friday night that she went missing, and after interviewing the friends Jeremy said he was with, all of them crumbled under pressure and said they had been lying and covering for him. It came out that he was with his friends, but only until about 2 a.m. So that means from 2 a.m. Saturday morning to the next time Kristen and Sue saw him, his whereabouts are completely unaccounted for. When police questioned him about this, he couldn't give any straight answers. And the locations he told police he had been at during that time kept changing repeatedly and were not consistent at all. 
The more the FBI kept digging, the more and more that seemed to keep coming forward. They ended up finding out that Jeremy had actually borrowed a truck from one of his friends that night, which is weird because Jeremy has his own car, but said he wanted to borrow their truck instead. At 6.30 a.m. that morning, and keep in mind the three calls made on her dad's landline were at 5.20 a.m., Jeremy went back to his friend's house, which just so happened to also be in the area the three phone calls were trying to reach. His friend stated that once he arrived with the truck, Jeremy seemed panicked and freaked out about something, but never said what it was. He kept asking one of his friends to follow him so he could, quote, get rid of this truck and get his car back. This friend followed Jeremy to a church parking lot where Jeremy left the truck and got in his friend's car to get dropped off at Sue's house, which, remember, this was where Kristen was staying. When authorities were finally able to get their hands on that truck, it had been completely cleaned out. A considerable amount of time had passed since Kimberly had gone missing by this time, but they were trying to figure out exactly where the truck had been taken to be vacuumed out. As far as we know, nothing was found in the truck unless findings are being withheld by the police. At this point, even though Jeremy's alibi is suspicious, they ultimately have no evidence to move forward. I did learn that in 1998, Jeremy ended up going to jail for something completely unrelated. I'm also curious as to whether or not Kristen and the family knew about his criminal history or if he had been hiding it from them. It's important to think about the fact that there was no forced entry into Kimberly's dad's house, which means that Kimberly either knew the person and let them in willingly, or the person had their own key and let themselves in. I found out that a few months before Kimberly went missing, Jeremy and her older sister had stayed at Kenny's house for about a month. Jeremy was very close to the family, and he had to have known that Kimberly was staying at her dad's because he knew that Kristen was staying at Sue's. Since he had stayed at Kenny's with Kristen, it's very possible he may have had his own key. The family couldn't recall for sure if he did or not, but Kristen said that she was pretty sure he did have one. In the months and years after Kimberly's disappearance, community members, the FBI, and local law enforcement agencies searched miles of land from Alabama to Florida looking for her. Her mom told Dateline NBC, quote, there were all kinds of search efforts, with four-wheelers and on foot, and the searches went on for several years. The FBI even brought in infrared planes, and they had all kinds of dogs. Every single weekend, we would all go out and search, end quote. Nine months after Kimberly disappeared on her 18th birthday, investigators searched Walton County Lake. They were acting on two tips that her body had been dumped there. The search lasted three days and turned up no clues relating to Kimberly's case. In 2001, a nonprofit group in Texas searched Baptism Hole with Cadaver Dogs and got several hits. They dug up an engine block that had a rope tied to it but had to leave the site before they could excavate it completely. The next day, the FBI brought in its own cadaver dogs and the dogs gave no indication of smelling human remains so no more searches were conducted in this area. In September of 2006, investigators searched a sinkhole near Ponce de Leon, Florida for Kimberly's remains after receiving an anonymous tip directing them to that location. 
The sinkhole was around 55 feet deep and 300 feet across. The FBI was suspicious of this tip because it was in the same general area that the phone calls had been made to that night. They spent 35 hours searching the water and found nothing. In March of 2015, investigators from various agencies acted on a tip that her remains might be buried in a well near Coffee County, Alabama. Authorities used a large bulldozer and cadaver dogs in an eight-hour search, ultimately finding nothing. To this day, there is still no trace of Kimberly Raymer. Over the last couple decades, she has been the subject of numerous network television programs, and Kimberly would now be in her 40s. Her mom made a statement to News 4 saying, quote, I have a feeling I know who did it, end quote. She will not publicly name that person, but it is known to be a former family friend. Criminal investigators have not publicly identified a suspect either, but privately they point suspicion toward the same person Kimberly's mom believes murdered her daughter. District Attorney Merrill could not discuss grand jury testimony, but he admits the investigation into Kimberly's death has ramped up. He stated, quote, Per the grand jury's instructions, we will reconvene and present the next phase of evidence we have discovered. I am confident that we will find justice for Kimberly Raymer. He will not disclose when the grand jury will meet again. Witnesses who testify before grand juries in Alabama are forbidden from discussing that testimony until the grand jury makes its decision regarding indictment. Kimberly's older sister Kristen said, quote, It's something that is always with us, and it will never go away. We will never stop looking for her. People need to remember what happens. If this was your child, your sister, your friend, you would never stop looking. End quote. Kimberly Raymer was last seen on August 15, 1997 at her home when she was 17 years old. She has brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot 4 and weighed around 130 pounds. She was last seen wearing a white t-shirt with a bright design, cut-off gray sweatpants, a gold bracelet, necklace, and also an anklet. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the case of Kimberly Raymer, please contact the Mobile County FBI at 251-438-3674. That is all I have for the first episode of Creme de la Crime podcast. If any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email creme de la crime podcast 7 at gmail.com. Please feel free to rate and review the show and don't forget to head to Instagram and follow me at creme de la crime pod. As always, Don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. (laughs) 